I am a woman on a mission trying to help Christians get a much better understanding of what God really meant sex to be. Welcome to this week's edition of the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, the place to come when you feel like marriage is too much of a to-do list and you want it to be more of a passionate adventure. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, because what can be more passionate than wonderful biblical sex? But you know what? The way that we're often taught about sex actually takes away a lot of that passion. And so what I want to launch into right now is how can we look at sex the way that God presents sex in the Bible and how can we sort out how some of the ways that we talk about sex in the Christian church actually really wreck women's libidos. They wreck the way that we think about sex. They wreck the way that marriages relate um, in terms of sex. And really, it takes away from the joy that we're supposed to have on our sex lives. So let's get going and look at this. And to do that, I want to share with you a story. And I think I've shared this in another podcast. I certainly talk about it every time I speak in public. But it's important, okay? So I'm 13 years old, and I'm sitting in church on those pews surrounded by all my junior high friends. And the pastor opens up his Bible to Genesis chapter 4. And back then, we didn't really have the New International Version. It was about a year before it came out, so all of you can start doing the math as to how old I am. And the pastor read the words in the King James Version, and Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived unto them a son. And of course, all of my friends and I started giggling because that was hilarious. Like Adam knew his wife and we just figured that God was embarrassed of using the real word or something. And so he was just being euphemistic. But interestingly, as I got older and I looked into that, I noticed something really cool. The Hebrew word there for Adam knew his wife is the Hebrew word howda. And it is the same word which David uses again and again in the Psalms when he says, search me and know me, O God. Know my inmost heart. Know everything about me. It means this deep intimacy, this deep longing to be totally connected. There's a guy uh, out of Trinity Western University in Vancouver called Chuck McNee who's written a ton on this. I I read a lot about this as I was writing The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex because I really wanted to encapsulate what is it that God wants for sex? And that is the essential thing. It's this deep knowing. It's this deep longing to be connected. C.S. Lewis talks about it in The Four Loves that yes, sex is this animal instinct, but it's more than that. It's also this urge to devour someone. It's because you just need to feel like you are so close. And that's what God created sex to be. There was this philosopher back in the 1500s named Blaise Pascal. And he was the one who coined the phrase, the God-shaped vacuum inside each of us. It's like, it's like there's this empty hole inside us that needs and longs to be filled. And the problem is that a lot of us are trying to fill it with things that don't work, that don't make us feel centered at all. But I think that God put that in us so that we would all have a longing to know him. It's like what it says in Ecclesiastes 3, um, that God has placed eternity in our hearts and no one can fathom what he has done from beginning to end. Like God has placed this this longing to know God, this, this understanding that we are spiritual beings, and he's placed that in our hearts. And I think that when God created sex... He created sex kind of to mirror that intimacy that he wants to have with us. That's why God talks about his relationship with us in such sexual terms. Like Jesus is the bridegroom and he's going to be united with the bride, which is the church. There's going to be a wedding banquet and a consummation in heaven. I mean, it is really sexual the way that God talks about us. And I think it's to give us this picture, this word picture but beyond just a word picture, like an actual understanding of of what our spiritual relationship with God should look like, like what this God-shaped vacuum, this longing to be intimate with God is really like. And that just as we long to be with God, he created us with this longing to be connected to each other. And I think it's really cool the way he created sex, because it is this emotional and spiritual longing to know each other, but it's done in a physical way. It's like the height of physical pleasure. And really, orgasm is absolute losing control. 
You know, like you can't, you can't be thinking in a logical way at the height of orgasm. It doesn't work. It takes you away. It carries you away. It makes you completely and utterly vulnerable, completely and utterly out of control for a moment. Again, to show us what it is like to be in a passionate relationship with God too. And the reason that we feel that with each other is so that we can be carried away with another human being. We can experience this height of passion, this height height of vulnerability, this height of intimacy with another person. I mean, it's the only time that you can totally let your guard down, let your guard down to the extent that you can't even think straight. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is highly vulnerable and that you experience that pleasure and that vulnerability with another person. That's what makes you feel like you are totally knowing each other and totally longing to be together. And so it's that physical and that emotional and that spiritual all in one. That is how the Bible talks about sex. And yet, how often have you heard sex in marriage talked about that way? We really haven't, had, have we? I mentioned last month on the blog and in the podcast, too, about how the, the best-selling marriage book, Love and Respect, talks about sex as if it's only about the man's physical release. I mentioned on the blog uh, about a year or two ago, I did a whole series on the book, Every Man's Battle, and I showed how the way that women especially are often taught about how men approach sex is not actually biblical because what we are told is that lust is every man's battle and so you need to give your husband sex or else he will lust after other women and it is your responsibility to help him battle lust because the poor guy can't do it on his own and when we talk about sex that way first of all what we're really saying to women is he has a need that you will never fully understand and as I'll talk about in my blog post next week, and, and we'll talk about on the podcast as well, that really puts women in a difficult situation because if we can never, if we can never possibly understand how deep his need goes, then there's nothing that we might need that could possibly be greater than that. Because if his need is absolutely incomprehensible, then no matter what I'm feeling, he must have a need that's greater. And so it means that we don't matter. And that is not right. If, if sex is a deep intimacy and a deep longing, then it's supposed to be about two people together. But the other problem with this way of looking at every man's battle is that the Bible does not talk about lust as a battle that every man will face. And when we say that it is every man's battle, what we're essentially saying is that it's a battle that no man can win. And that's not true. I got some flack for some guys. Even some high up authors phoned me that week when I was talking about every man's battle and said, you got to stop because you're making men feel badly. And that's that's kind of ironic because I was actually intending to do the opposite was I was trying to tell guys, look, if you're battling lust, good for you. It means you're engaged in the battle and that is wonderful. But I also want you to know that this is a battle that you can win. It's not like you're stuck. And the way that it is often talked about, you know, that joke pastor, when did you stop battling lust? You know, and he says, well, I never have. Well, that's not how Paul talks about lust at all. Paul talks about lust as being something which you can defeat. In fact, when Paul gives lists of sins, lust isn't even mentioned in some of those lists. So it's not as if lust is in a separate category. The modern church has put it in that central category and has said that men battle this and this women have to help them battle it or else they'll never be able to truly love women. And that's just not biblical. And it puts a whole level of obligation on women that women were never supposed to have. I do believe that men are far more visually stimulated than women. I do believe that many more men struggle with lust than women do. I do believe that men seriously do, most men, not all, but seriously do have a felt need for sex in a way that women do not. But we need to make sure that when we are talking about sex, we present it as something which is mutual, not something which is only about his physical needs or else he will stray. And so that's why I am a woman on a mission, <laughs> because I want to change the whole way 
that we talk about sex. You know, interestingly, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 to 5, those famous do not deprive verses that we hear quoted all the time, it actually does not talk about men's sexual needs being paramount. In fact, it mentions the women's sexual needs first. Listen to this. This is the NIV. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. When I read those verses, what I see is not a sex life, which is about your husband, but a sex life where mutuality is at the heart of it. And whose needs are mentioned first? The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Her needs are mentioned first. It says, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. And it just as the husband should fulfill his marital duty, so the wife should fulfill her marital duty. So the wife's body belongs to the husband, but the husband's body also belongs to the wife. Paul did not treat sex like it was a one-sided thing. And yet we often hear it taught like it is a one-sided thing. And when you're growing up in the church and you hear that over and over again, I really think this is why women lose our libidos because we're never taught that we have any in the first place. We're taught that men have this huge need that we can never understand and thus we need to have sex no matter what we feel just to help him feel good. And we're never taught about this idea of mutual intimacy and mutual longing. Now I shouldn't say never because some of you are in great churches where this is taught and I mean hey you're on my blog so you're taught about this all the time but I want to call the church back to a biblical definition of sex and a biblical way of looking at sex, which is that it's not only about men's physical release, but it's about both of you knowing each other. In the last couple of weeks, I've done some surveys on Twitter and Facebook where I've been asking, which message have you heard more frequently about sex in the church and in book, Christian books, etc.? Do not deprive your husband or women's sexual pleasure matters. And the answers were 95% to 5%. Okay. 95% we have heard, do not deprive your husband. We have made sex entirely about the guy and not enough about the woman. It's a mutual thing. It reminds me of a post that I wrote quite a while ago that someone drew my attention to this week. Um, it was a reader question and she was saying that she's just in a difficult place because her husband doesn't actually like intercourse. He likes being sexually active. They do a lot of things, but he doesn't like to finish through intercourse. He likes to finish another way. And so reading, reading between the lines, what I'm assuming she means is that he would rather finish through oral sex than through intercourse. And she finds this difficult because they're not really experiencing any kind of connection and she wonders what to do. Yeah. You know, I'm reading this and I'm going, yeah, girl, I totally feel you. I am not saying that oral sex is wrong, by the way. I am not saying any of those things are wrong. I think that there is great freedom in the marriage bed. In fact, one of the things that I'm going to be talking about over the next few weeks is how we have to change our definition of sex so that it isn't only about intercourse, but it's about feeling close and bringing pleasure to each other and being intimate. And those, those things are all important. But there is a point where if what you prefer sexually is to be serviced, <laughs> and that is essentially what she's saying, is that he wants to be serviced, instead of having there be any mutuality, you are missing out on a vital part of sex. And I think it signals that there's something inside of him that is perhaps immature sexually, immature emotionally, where he is not able to connect. And she's feeling guilty because she's feeling like he's always asking me for this. And as a wife, I'm not supposed to deprive him, but she feels like her needs don't matter. I mean, essentially, her husband is saying, I prefer my sexual experiences to be focused on myself rather than us together. He may not consciously think that or say it out loud, but that's what his actions are showing. And why would someone get to this point? You know, why would sex be about his sexual experiences to be focused on himself? I think when you grow up masturbating, you reinforce that idea that sexual release is supposed to be where you're concentrating only on yourself and you don't like to have to think about another person's pleasure. And that's certainly an issue. 
So it could be stunted sexual maturation. He could have sexual dysfunction, you know, where he's worried about erectile dysfunction. He certainly could have a porn addiction because one of the effects of porn is that it makes intercourse far less intimate and far less desirable. Pornography rarely depicts regular intercourse. It usually depicts other sorts of acts where uh, he is getting serviced, essentially. And so guys start to think that is what's sexy and that intimacy itself is no longer sexy. And that's just so sad and so dangerous. And honestly, if your husband's using porn, you got to put your foot down. That is not a safe thing. It's only going to get worse and it's not good for a marriage at all. But we are at the point now where we have talked about sex so much as being about his physical release that we don't even notice when stuff like this is going on, that it might be wrong, that it might be a signal that there's some underlying issue. And I do believe that that underlying issue is that we aren't being called to something higher. You know, what we're told is that, hey, as long as he is getting his physical release, then your marriage is good sexually. That's not true, women. It really isn't. Our sexuality in marriage is supposed to be something which brings us together, which makes us feel close. It is not something which is supposed to make you feel like an object. It is not something which is supposed to make you feel like you're just his receptacle. I, I mean, it's just so gross. And I know, and I'm so sorry that that is the way that a lot of authors have talked about it. I really am. But I'm here to call us to something higher. I, I tried to do that in the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. I hope I succeeded. A lot of people tell me that I did, and, and that's wonderful. Um, and I encourage you to read that book if you haven't yet. But sex is supposed to be physical, emotional, and spiritual intimacy all wrapped up in one. That's what God designed us for, was real intimacy. And that's what sex is supposed to be. So let's call us to something more. Let's start talking about sex, not just as his physical release, but about a beautiful, mutual sharing and knowing of each other. And why is this important? I, would, I got into a Facebook discussion a couple of weeks ago about an article that talked about the female price of male pleasure and how often sex can be quite uncomfortable for women and that doesn't seem to register in the equation very often. And as I was going back and forth with some commenters, really interesting discussion, a man was arguing that this just wasn't accurate because men do want to sexually satisfy their wives. And I would certainly hope that, that is true. But here's what I was trying to get at. And I'll just read you one of my responses. I truly don't think that this is generally a husband problem. I think this is a Christian culture problem and a wider culture problem too. When women grow up in this culture where Christian books tell us that all men struggle with lust, that we are responsible for keeping men from lusting, that if we don't have sex they'll lust, that men need it every 72 hours, that men experience sex in a way that we women will never understand and so we need to give it to them. Well, it's hardly surprising that so many women don't want sex. And the sad thing is that even if a husband doesn't believe any of this and really wants to help his wife, it's hard because it's not really about him. It's all those messages that she has heard her entire life. We just have to change the way we talk about it. And we have to talk far more loudly about how women deserve sexual pleasure too, how a woman's orgasm matters, how women's pain and discomfort matter, how men will not die if they don't get sex, and how women are not responsible for men's lust. If we start doing that, then we may be able to get the baseline better so that women can at least start their married sexual lives from a better place. That's what I'm trying to do. Let's get us starting from a better place. This month, we're going to talk about how we can start talking about sex in a very different way. Let's call us to something higher where it is about intimacy and all levels. That's how God designed it. And we need to stop debasing sex and start talking about it as something which is a mutual and beautiful experience. Maybe you're engaged and you're wondering what sex is actually going to be like. Or maybe you've been married for a while, but you're wondering what all the fuss is about. I get it. And in The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, I lay out how God made sex to be awesome, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Check it out today. For this episode of Millennial Marriage, we are going to talk youth pastors, and I have invited Rebecca to join us. I mean, have you invited me at this point? I'm kind of just on every single time, right? Okay, you're right. All right, so here's Rebecca. Although sometimes I'm hoping to do Millennial Marriage with like you and Connor, or maybe bring Joanna on. Yeah, it just happens point. to have been always you from. Well, no, Connor did that one, but anyway, youth pastors. Okay, so here's the thing: 
major, major, major scandals right now in the Southern Baptist Convention, um, that huge Houston Chronicle expose about sexual abuse in Southern Baptist Church. And let me just say that I do not think that the reaction from the convention has been very good right now. And I want to go on record of saying that I was really disappointed in what the executive committee did this week. For those of you who don't know, you can Google it. I won't go on here about that. I just want to say for the record that I'm disappointed and I hope they step up to the plate. Also, a lot of stuff about the Catholic Church out there, um, the big conference that just happened to look at how to reduce sexual abuse. Major important things. But as I was reading about this, and I've been tweeting about it like crazy, uh, there was this article about um, one of the the problems that we never talk about is that maybe we're hiring the wrong youth pastors. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And there was a blog post in particular that was asking this that I know we've both read, where the argument was, why are we hiring people who are only 20 years old to be the spiritual leader for high schoolers, like to be their their primary spiritual leader? They're only 20. Yeah, let me read you a quote from that article, okay? So this is, this is from um, Southern Baptist Church Voices. Uh, the author is a guy named Tony Jones, and here's what he says. One of the men met with the youth and said, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to teach you God's word. That man is now a pastor, but he was criticized by some as being not cool enough to be a youth minister. But he was the right kind of youth minister. The second youth minister was cool. He was cool and he talked about Jesus. He was so cool, he would stay out with the youth until two or three in the morning while his wife and kids were at home. That man is now divorced and out of the ministry. He had no business being a youth minister. All too often, we take a man in his late teens or early 20s who has charisma, call, and conviction, and we give him the authority over our most vulnerable members. Exactly. And further along in the article, this man is not... Um, the writer of the article is not saying we shouldn't be hiring yeah. people in their young 20s to be pastors. Not at all. But what he's saying is maybe we start off pastor, like pastoral callings in a place with a bit more supervision, like as an associate pastor or as a pastor of, um, you know, ministry direction or something where you're, you're answering to someone. Versus what often happens is you get these youth pastors who have unlimited power with anyone between the ages of 11 and 18. Yeah, which is kind of funny because what is the major crisis in the church right now? It's that when people get to be college age, they leave the church. So the most vulnerable people in the church, the people that we most want to get to embrace the faith, are teenagers. And yet we're handing them over to these very, very inexperienced young people. Exactly. I mean, I'm only 24 years old, right? Like, but even I am three years older than some youth pastors. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, I think that's a little bit crazy when you actually think about it. And now I also think that we should both say there are definitely people out there who are 20, 21 years old, who are a hundred percent called to what they're doing. They're serving with youth ministry. That's what they're meant to be doing. Totally. But I also think there is something to be said for having a little bit more prudence and actually thinking about these things first and maybe not jumping to the youngest candidate whenever we yeah, talk about youth we, ministry immediately. We tend to think that young equals cool. And exactly. I don't think that's actually true. I, I remember um, youth pastors that both you and Katie have had that you just thought were ridiculous because they were young and they thought they were cool and you guys were more mature than they were. And so while they could relate to, you know, 13 or 14 year old boys, they could not relate to 17 year old mature high school girls. Well, exactly. And it's like, I'm sorry, but if, if, you are able to be pals of 13, 14 year olds without much effort. Maybe there should be some maturation before you're dealing with the grade 12s who are going off on their own for the first time, who are dealing with, you know, real issues like friends who are addicted to drugs and, you know, pregnancy scares and all those kinds of crazy things a lot of times they have to deal with in their social circles. Mm -hmm. And these are all, again, like, obviously God calls who he calls. And sometimes he's going to call people who don't seem to fit the proper mold. But the problem is, when we're seeing this disproportionately young group of people serving in youth ministry, and then we also see that a lot of boundaries are being crossed in youth ministries across the states and Canada, it becomes a question of, well, why are we letting someone who's only 20, 21 years old be the spiritual leader to people who are 17, who realistically... I mean, they are peers. Yeah. They are peers. And that's where um, some of the issues with uh, sexual abuse come in because, you know, people look at a situation where, you know, a 22-year-old youth pastor quote unquote has an affair with a 17 year old and they say well that wasn't clergy sexual abuse that was just a relationship it is never a relationship where there is a power imbalance by the way and if as someone is your clergy then it is automatically clergy sex abuse which is against the law in most jurisdictions all right just want to say that just want to throw that out there but 
when we're not really familiar with the dynamics of sexual abuse, we look at that situation and we see a 22 year old with a 17 year old and we think, well, that's just a relationship. Well, because to be honest, when I was 16, 17, I had lots of friends who were in their early 20s and we were legitimate friends. Yeah. Like we talked about real things. We were really quite close and I'm still friends with them now. Like we just got along because when you are someone who is an emotionally mature teenager, which I do think I was, it's easy to actually connect with those people in their 20s. And so I think it just puts a lot of these young people, especially young men are often hired as youth pastors. And I think it often puts them in in uncomfortable situations because what happens if you are someone who's very young and you actually do have real friendships and real connections with these kids I think often lines can get blurred really easily. And I think it's a little bit harder to have those lines blurred when someone is 30 or 32 and the person is 16. Right, exactly. Then they seem a bit more like a baby. Yeah. <laughs> and like like what your husband was saying when we were talking about this before, um, what, what, how did he phrase it exactly? He, I think he said it's problematic when the person who's primarily involved in someone's spiritual development can also be a sexual candidate. Yes, just can't have that. So mm-hmm. let's think differently about youth pastors. And the other issue is I really think we need to stop with youth groups being so distinct from the church um, because there is this feeling among among youth ministry that we're the special ones. Adults don't understand us. Uh, mm-hmm. Adults don't really want to understand us. You so kind of get just... the twilight effect where I'm the only one who can understand your struggles and your heart. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then it, that, that makes it all the more easy to cross boundaries too. I remember one time I was so angry. There was a youth um, minister that you had and he he wasn't 20. He was a lot older. Uh, So that wasn't the issue. The age wasn't the issue. But we were having issues with the way that the youth group was being run. And you shared about this at length in in Why I Didn't Rebel, the book that you wrote. Yes, I did. But I I went downstairs to where the youth group was meeting one night because I just wanted to see what was going on. And he came and had someone close the door on me so that I couldn't come in. Yeah. And that was it. As a parent, I I lost it. I think we didn't go back after that. Right. I said, no, we're done. Because this was after a lot of the stuff that we already talked about in the book had happened. And I said, we're done. And that was the last straw. We're done. Because you do not exclude parents. Youth group should never be something where it's secretive. And I think that this this feeling like um, only I understand you and adults will never understand you, it creates this kind of secrecy where a lot of youth ministry flourishes. But there's another issue too, okay? If you look at at the average high school group, you've got your kids who are going to be blue-collar workers. You've got your kids who are going to be in the service industry. You've got your stay-at-home moms in the future. You've got your kids who are going to be major professionals. You've got your kids who are going to be doing like eight years of graduate school. You've got this whole mess of kids and they're all friends and that's Mm -hmm. wonderful. But when we bring in youth pastors who are 20, 22 years old, they can't relate to the kids who are going to be going on to school to multiple years. Yeah, because if you're already certified to be a youth pastor by the time that you're 20 or 21, you've probably done like two or three years at Bible college and that's it. Right. And they just haven't had that kind of life experience. And so it can make it very difficult for some of the kids to relate to the youth pastor because their their future is going to look so different. Now, obviously, I mean, any youth minister who comes in is going to have a different life trajectory than a lot of the youth. Oh, definitely. But there is a difference between like a 32-year-old who did two years of college and then... Because at least you've gotten the other 10 years of life experience. Right. And and so if we're truly going to serve our youth, because remember, it is our youth that is the backbone of our church we need our youth to stay connected to christ we need our youth to have a genuine relationship with christ and yet instead of spending the money on them and instead of prioritizing youth we're giving them these these 21 22 year old pastors youth pastors who really have very little experience and who aren't necessarily that mature and uh exactly let's rethink youth ministry completely and let's rethink the beginning of ministry and pastoral calling in general. Like, let's get those young pastors into more supervised positions so they can really grow and learn and follow God's calling. And then if they're called to youth ministry, then they can start it maybe after they've done five or six yeah. years in ministry. I love it. So we will share uh, that article that you can read in the extras. It's definitely worth a read. It, it poses some really interesting questions that I think more churches need to answer. Yeah, so that's going to be in the post on the blog. It's com. I have all the extras from the podcast and you can find it there. Is sex the one thing in your marriage it's hard to talk about? Do you have a hard time telling him what feels good? Do you have difficulty working through your differences in libido? One of the best tools to start those conversations and turn your sex life around is 31 Days to Great Sex. 
It's a series of short, daily challenges you work through with your spouse that are oh so fun. Check it out today. I've invited Rebecca back for the reader question because this is one that I think she actually has a unique perspective on from her psychology degree. So, Becca, do you want to read it for us? Sure. Okay, here's the question. My husband was involved in an emotional affair. At the time, I was pregnant. My husband has recommitted to our marriage, but it's still been very difficult. We began counseling together, but now my husband is going to individual counseling and I am with a biblical counselor. Still, I have felt hopeless for how to trust him again and become comfortable feeling physically intimate. My husband struggled with porn and he got an accountability partner and community, but incidents still occurred. Just when I thought we were getting better, the emotional affair hit. It seems like we're back to ground zero and I've always struggled with low libido too. It feels like we have so much against us. What do I do? Don't you just feel for her? Yeah. I am so sorry. And I know there's so many people who are on my blog who are just aching and begging to rebuild marriages that have been so damaged. And I just want you to know that if if that's your story, I really, really feel for you. And I know that God could do amazing things. And I know that there could be amazing transformation. And I believe that can happen for you. I pray that it does. But... <laughs> Um, I do think that there are sometimes in the church ways that we go about trying to find healing that can actually end up hurting. Yes, because a lot of times people confuse Christian counselors with biblical counselors, Mm -hmm. and they're not always the same thing. Right, so let's talk about the difference. Yeah, so pretty much when it comes to mental health professionals, there are different kind of quote-unquote layers or levels. So the most amount of schooling goes into psychiatry. Okay, yes. So you're able to diagnose mental illness, you're able to prescribe medication, you pretty much have to become a psychologist and a doctor. So it's a lot of medic it's a lot of school. Right. Then next one kind of like quote unquote under that would be your clinical psychologists mm-hmm. or what we just normally call psychologists. And they're the ones who they have the ability to diagnose. They can't actually prescribe medication, but they do a lot of treatments like, you know, you have your typical your therapies, your behavior modification therapies, your Um, cognitive behavioral approaches, those kinds of things. So if you have severe depression long term, you'd probably want to see a psychologist. Right. And a psychologist has gotten usually at least an MA or a PhD, which is about an eight year. Oh, they they need a PhD. They need a PhD. In some places in the States, you only need a PsyD, which is a psychology doctorate Uh instead of a philosophy doctorate. So, but it's, it's at least four or five years minimum. Right. And that's post, so that, that's post grad. So that's like four yes. years of your undergrad in psychology and then four to five years on top of that. Exactly. Okay. Cause you have to do a PhD while you're doing okay. it. So. Okay. And then the one that we normally talk about when it comes to counseling would be your counselors and that is your psychotherapist. Okay. So a psychotherapist doesn't just mean Sigmund Freud. <laughs> <laughs> it literally just means anyone who has that training. It's someone in Canada, you have to be licensed with the Board of Psychotherapy in Canada in order to pra- practice counseling in, in most provinces. In the States, there's something similar. I forget what it is called because I am Canadian. <laughs> These are the people who have a minimum two-year master's degree after their undergrad from a university that is accredited with the School of Psychotherapy and then have also passed their, psych- their School of Psychotherapy exam, which grants them a license to practice counseling or psychotherapy. And they've also done like a residency kind of thing where they've worked under another counselor counselor or psychologist like it's really quite thorough yeah they have to get some huge amount like a thousand hours or something pretty much you have to work almost for free for a year and then you take the biggest test of your life and then you finally get to be a counselor right so it's it's very intense and rigorous that is the minimum amount of schooling that i would recommend someone having before you see them yes Biblical counselors do not have that kind of schooling. No. And they don't have that kind of accountability to a school of psychotherapy or something like that. In fact, in some states, I know you don't even need any accreditation. No, you can just take some weekend courses and that's it. And the thing about a biblical counselor, too, is the way that they describe themselves. Their theory is that we need nothing other than the Bible to treat you, which can sound very like, oh, yes, we have major faith and isn't this wonderful and we're so Christian. Um, And I'm not trying to talk against the Bible. But they make it sound like Christian counselors who have that two-year master's degree and who have done all of this internship are somehow wrong because they've studied books like John Townsend and Cloud's Boundaries book, for instance, which they say isn't biblical because it's using something other than the Bible. And the problem too is that Yes, I agree that the Bible holds great truth. And I think probably we can find all of life's answers in the Bible. I likely do actually think that. But the problem is, in a clinical setting where someone is incredibly vulnerable and they're dealing with a real issue, that can become incredibly manipulative very quickly. Because I agree, there's truth can be found in the Bible. But how can you be sure that you have the truth that is in 
the Bible for that person. Like, I mean, I'm sorry, but we disagree about things theologically all of the time. Do you really think that you can trust someone to tell you exactly what the Bible says for your exact situation and exactly what to do all of the time with mm-hmm. no questions and no accountability? Because there's that's, again, the thing. There's no accountability for what a biblical counselor tells you. Yeah, so let's come back to the doctrinal stuff first in a minute because I have a lot to say about that. But And let's just talk about this accountability thing because this is vitally important for people to understand. Professional counselors who are licensed in Canada, they will lose their license if they disclose any of your personal information. Mm -hmm. Like even if they tell somebody that you're a client, not even what you're seeing them about. Like even if they mention that that you're a client, they could lose their license. (laughs) Yeah, because confidentiality is a real issue. The only time they're allowed to tell anyone is if they believe that you may be a direct threat to yourself or others. As in you have to go to a hospital on suicide watch or the police need to be told because you are on your way to kill someone. That kind of thing. Now, a biblical counselor on the other hand, if you look at a lot of churches offer biblical counselors to their to their people, and often there'll be a website where you have to sign uh, away your rights to this. If you actually read the fine print, what it says is that they do not guarantee confidentiality. They reserve mm-hmm. the right to tell the elders or the pastor if there are issues that the elders or pastors need to know. And they don't spell out what those issues are. Exactly. And I'm sorry, but your pastors and elders never need to know anything that's said in therapy. I could understand they said they don't guarantee confidentiality if you become a harm to yourself or others. They might tell the police. But anytime anyone other than the police would get involved, it's completely inappropriate. And it screams to me that there might be some sort of weird abusive power imbalance yeah. relationship happening. And then there was another issue where we were looking at the counseling. Um, it was done out of one of the Harvest Bible Chapel uh, churches here, where it also said that if there is a disagreement between the biblical counseling and the client that the elders would decide who is right like they are then the arbiters and if you're going to the counselor you are agreeing to this ahead of the time now think about that for a minute let's say that you're this woman okay and she's really struggling with the fact that her husband is using porn that he had an emotional affair uh that he probably there's there's weird sexual issues perhaps i don't know i'm not saying she said that in the letter i'm just trying to fill in some some story here and she goes to the counselor and the biblical counselor tells her you need to forgive him because jesus said to forgive up to seven, 70 times seven and you're not forgiving so you are in sin you need to be completely reconciled to him and you need to have sex with him no matter what he wants which does say which does happen a lot in biblical counseling those yes, kinds which, of messages are given right which i'm going to get to in a minute separate point stay on stay on point here becca okay. <laughs> This is how I talk to my kid. Anyway, okay, so so we're talking about, so she goes there and she says that, and then the biblical counselor says to her, um, well, if you can't listen to me, and if you then I need to go to the elders and put you under church discipline, which happens. I mean, all you need to do is Google um, the village church, Matt Chandler, and what he did to Karen Hinckley back in, I think it was 2015, it made the national news because she was married to a guy who she found out was addicted to, porn, to child porn, not just porn, but child porn. And um, she went to leave him and the elders board put her under church discipline, even though she said she didn't want to be a member of the church anymore. I sent out emails about her saying that she was um, sinning because she wanted to to annul the marriage. And this is a guy who used child porn, okay? (laughs) And the church eventually had to apologize. But that's the crap that you can get into. And the problem is, again, that there's no accountability. And that's why these things can happen. Because I'm sure there are a lot of biblical counselors out there who would never dream of telling clients those kinds of things, who would never dream of doing that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. you know? And to be completely honest, there are kind of bad counselors out there too. But the thing about counselors is that they have no no real authority over your life. Yes. And in counseling, you are very free to just not make another appointment. They're not going to call you. They're not going to harass you. If they do, in fact, you call the police and they can actually get their license taken away. That's right. Whereas with biblical counselors, there's no accountability to anyone who actually knows anything about psychology or mental health. But there is a lot of accountability that you have to have to them. So you put yourself into a weird power imbalance immediately, which is, quite frankly, completely unacceptable in non-Christian mental health circles. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, so here's where I want to talk about actual Christian counselors, though, because that a lot of people get their backs up about that. But Christian counselors often just mean someone who is a Christian who has a 
licensed to practice psychotherapy. Yes. But that being said, there's also a lot of people who call themselves Christian counselors who do not have a license. So if you're ever trying to seek help with your mental health problem or with a relationship problem or just general counseling just because, you know, life's just not quite where you want it to be, ask to see their accreditation or ask where they went to school. It's totally appropriate. Anyone who has proper accreditation will be like, oh yeah, wow, good for you asking that. They, they actually enjoy it when people do that because it means that you're taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. It's actually a really good sign to your counselor and they're not offended at all. It is not an offensive thing. I mean, that person worked for like six or seven years to That's get that. Right. They love showing off their degree. You know how few times you actually get to show off your degree? So just ask. <laughs> Yeah, and when we say that it's a two-year degree, what we mean is it's a two-year degree after your main degree. So it's actually a six-year degree. Exactly. It's a six-year degree. Yeah. That's right. And um, let me let me get back to the thing that I kept saying I was going to get back to, which is the doctrinal issue. Here's, mm-hmm. here's my problem with a lot of biblical counselors. Not all, obviously, but many practice in a church setting where the goal is to keep marriages together. That was certainly the case in the village church with Karen Hinckley, they wanted to preserve that marriage no matter what. That is not necessarily God's view. Because to God, the people are more important than the marriage. God himself issued Israel a certificate of divorce, okay? When Israel had done such terrible things, okay? In the Bible, it talks about that, issuing a certificate of divorce. And God is not more concerned for the marriage, for the shell of the relationship, than he is for the people in it. And yet, If biblical counselors go into a situation where their main goal is to keep that marriage together, then when they're confronted with something like a verbally abusive or emotionally abusive situation, instead of calling that person to account, they might call on the wife to just change and try to be nicer so that he won't get so angry. Mm -hmm. And that's really dangerous. You know, Christian counselors who who have the proper credentials, they, they know that a person has to bear fruit. Of repentance. You know, before we can resurrect this marriage, we need to see that the person who is abusive has actually changed, that they have rebuilt trust. They know what it's going to look like to take some time um, to get to the root of the issue of why are you acting like this? They're not going to try to stick the two people into a marriage and keep that marriage going. What they're going to try to do is repair the marriage. And that's a very different thing. Exactly. When you go to see a licensed counselor, the goal is always going to be to get you towards wholeness. You know, that's the goal. And sometimes the road doesn't always look the same for everyone. Yeah, and they're trained in that. And um, the other issue that I've seen a lot with biblical counselors is that they make everything into, uh, well, you just haven't forgiven or you're feeling too bitter. Instead of, has this person actually changed and, and rebuilt trust? I'm not saying that you're not supposed to forgive, but you know, if you have a couple... But forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Right, and it doesn't mean reconciliation either. Like, if you, if in this case, you've got a guy who keeps slipping up and using porn all the time and has had an emotional affair, and then you have a woman who is doing everything right, as much as possible, and is really trying to get that marriage together, and the counselor is looking at both of these people, who is it that the counselor is most easily going to get to change to keep this marriage together? Well, it's the woman. And so, because she's the one who's been desperate to get the marriage to work this whole time. He's the one who's been messing up. And so you'll look at the woman and you'll say, well, why don't you do this? You need to forgive him. You need to validate his manhood. You know, and they're not really looking at the health and the dynamics. I'm not saying every biblical counselor is bad. I'm really not. But the thing is that licensed counselors, you know, they've had training and you know, they have accountability. So If they do do something really stupid, you know, you can go and complain about it. With biblical counselors, you really have no protection. And from the mental health standpoint, too, not just the relational standpoint, licensed counselors are trained to work with mental illness, whereas biblical counseling is often based on on the premise that all mental illness is only spiritual and often you are at fault for it. And although I do agree that there's often a spiritual element right. to many people's mental illness issues, I know there definitely was to mine, that doesn't mean that there isn't also a need for just good old therapy, you know? And it doesn't mean that we need to guilt people who have depression or anxiety yeah. into suddenly just repressing it so they don't feel it anymore, which is often what biblical counseling does when it comes to the real mental illnesses and related issues. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just need more serotonin in your system. And that's what you need. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes you really do need medication and that's okay. (laughs) So I would just, I would just say to this woman, um, you know, I would just say, get a counselor that really does understand dynamics. 
And it does sound like her husband is seeing an individual counselor, which usually means licensed ca- Why not just join him mm-hmm. for his counseling? Like, work through it together. Yeah, and I'm glad he's getting counseling. I think it's really important to get to the root of why he is so drawn to porn, why he can't seem to get intimate with her, because it seems like there's a block in him, which is running away from intimacy with her and trying to replace it with other things. And so I think that's an important question is what is it about intimacy that he can't handle? Uh, And I would be making sure that that is something which the counselors are looking at, uh, because I don't think you're going to get long-term healing until you've really dealt with the root cause. It's great to try to quit the porn. It's great to try to quit quit the emotional affairs, but those are symptoms of something deeper and you're not going to get real healing until you figure out what that deeper thing is. I want to close this week's edition of the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast with a comment thread that was going on about our podcast last week where I was talking about how women's sexual pleasure matters. And a woman wrote in to say that her husband just didn't seem interested in making her feel good and she'd kind of given up hope on having sex ever be about her. And so I replied to her, Sex should be mutual. If he just will not make an effort to make it feel good for you, then he is the one depriving you. He is the one sinning. And it's okay to say, I would love to have an exciting sex life with you. I want to make love frequently, but I am no longer willing to do that if you do not consider my experience to be important. Sex is supposed to be about both of us, not just you. If you don't want to make me feel good, then I'm going to have to step back sexually for a while. Again, I am more than willing and eager to make love, but it can no longer be just about you if our marriage is going to be strong. And then if he just won't listen, then insist that you see a counselor together. But this is not right, and it does need to be addressed. I think many men are honestly clueless and don't realize that their wives need more than just quick intercourse. Other guys honestly don't care, but most are just clueless. And sometimes you need to be very clear for them to understand. Most men, of course, truly do want to please their wives, but some just don't get it, and that's when it's time to speak up. So that's what I said. So she wrote back, and she said... I agree that it's a question more of cluelessness than ill will. The problem lies in communication and openness to putting effort in rather than just doing what comes naturally. Yes, part of the problem is selfishness, but part is just a deep fear and stubborn reluctance to acknowledge any problem in this area or to communicate about it. In our case, I disagree with the strategy of throwing down the gauntlet and withholding sex in an attempt to bring about change and healing. I think that approach would only cause him to withdraw totally. Right now, the door of communication about intimacy is barely cracked open. I believe that I need to be patient, tolerant, and affirming. If I start making demands or withholding sex, it will be slammed shut and maybe locked forever. If we were in a different situation, maybe I think it was worth the risk, but I'm not sure that it is. The risk that I'm taking now is that maybe sex will never be mutual, and that possibility makes me very sad, as do the years that have already gone by, but I can choose to dwell on it and get even sadder, or I can choose to focus on the positive and all the ways that I have been blessed non-sexually. Okay. First of all, this sounds like a wonderful woman who is truly trying to love her husband, and I really admire her, and I think more of us need to be like that, where she is just willing to lay down her rights and say, I want to make this marriage work, and that's lovely. At the same time, though, I do want to say something about this. Now, sometimes we get in these ruts where we just can't communicate. And sometimes our our spouses refuse to communicate, which sounds like what he's doing. You know, she says the, the door is barely cracked open and we can't talk about this. And if I were to talk about this, he would withdraw further. I honestly think that sometimes that can be a cop out. And I, I don't mean to address this just at her, but I've, I've heard this from a lot of women. My husband just won't talk about it. My husband just won't talk about it. If I try to raise it, he clams up. He just won't talk about it. You're right. He won't talk about it. And being nicer is not going to get him to talk about it. He's running away from talking about it because he doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to change. It makes him feel uncomfortable. And it makes him feel whatever reason, like he's doing something wrong or he can't deal with that. And so he won't talk about it. But it's your choice whether you allow that situation to continue. Because it's okay to say, no, honey, this is a big issue. 
I love you. I know you're running away from this and you're treating me like I'm rejecting you when I am not rejecting you. I am trying to fight for our marriage and that is what I'm going to do. Now she's willing to not fight for her marriage and that very well may be the right thing to do in her case. I think that God asks different things of us because we're all in different relationships. But I also think that we can get into a pattern in our marriage very early where we don't speak up and when we're quiet and we don't say the things that need to be said and it makes it much harder to say them down the road. For her to say, I am willing to continue giving him sex sort of for the rest of our lives and knowing that I'll never get anything out of it. That's wonderful and selfless. I'm not sure it's necessarily the best thing for the marriage. Because like I said in the main segment, sex is supposed to be about intimacy. It's supposed to be about both of you. When we make it only about one, we don't just rob ourselves of pleasure. We rob him of the feeling of intimacy too. And I think sometimes just being very firm and affirming him and saying, I love you. I want to have a great sex life with you, but it needs to be about both of us. This is important and I am willing to fight for it. People only change when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. For most people, changing is a very painful thing. For her husband, it sounds like, yeah, to change means that I have to admit some pretty hard things about myself that I'm not willing to face. And a lot of guys are really, really sensitive about feeling like they've done something wrong. Uh, and so they're not just going to change. And being nicer is not going to encourage that change. Because if you're nicer, you're actually making it easier to stay the way that it is. See, this is the thing. If someone's going to change, staying the same has to be more painful than changing. And so the easier you make the status quo, the less likely change is ever going to happen. It could be that God is doing an incredible work in your husband's heart and that after a period of time, God will have done such a work that your husband spontaneously changes. That does occur. Absolutely. But that's not the norm. The norm is that God created us with this human law. It's, it's kind of like a scientific law, but it applies to human behavior and that we reap what we sow. And if you are allowing your husband to not reap what he is sowing, He's not going to change. If he is sowing an unintimate, bad sex life, then he should also be reaping that. But that's not what he's reaping. That's a, If you're willing to live with that, that's okay. But what I'm saying is that I'm not even sure that's best for him in the long run. And so I just think we need to re-examine the way that we approach these things. I'm not saying be mean to him. Seriously, that can be a really, really affirming conversation. I love you. You're an amazing guy. I know you love me. I know you want the best for me. And so I find this very confusing that you don't seem eager to help me feel good. And I want to talk about how we can accomplish that. Sometimes it's easier to do with a book. You know, get 31 Days to Great Sex and just do what it says. Like guys often react better when there are specific directions to follow that aren't coming from the wife because then it's like a neutral party. So get 31 Days to Great Sex. Get my sexy dares. Those will really teach him how important foreplay is. Believe me. Remember that he isn't going to change because you're nicer. And if you're willing to live with that, if you think that's what God's calling you to, then by all means do that. Please obey the voice of God, not my voice. Okay, absolutely. But in general, when we're talking about behavior patterns, people don't change until the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of change. So you need to ask yourself, am I making staying the same easy for him? Because if you are, then this is what you're going to be living with for the rest of your life in all likelihood. And you need to decide if that really is what you want to live with. Thanks for joining me for the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast this week, where we try to make marriage into a passionate adventure and not a boring to-do list. You're tuning in at a time of great problems in the church at large. There's the sexual abuse scandal, the problem with the way so many Christian resources have treated marriage and sex, even the way so many churches have. But while it may look bleak, I want to encourage you that God is doing something amazing. He is shaking everything right now, and I think his real picture of marriage and sex is going to win out soon. 
I'm excited. I hope you're excited and I hope you'll keep tuning in so that we can keep this conversation going. Join me at lovehonorandvacuum.com where every week I post lots of extras to these podcasts so that you can go on lots of rabbit trails. And remember to rate the podcast a five star and write a review so that more people can hear about God's true design for sex and marriage.